some of the greatest events in history almost didn't happen. The course of civilizations has often been decided by decisions whose implications no one could have guessed at the time. In this series, we are talking about an empire that grew to rule much of the known world for centuries. But when the Prophet Muhammad lay on his deathbed, that state almost dissolved forever. How that was prevented, and how the Middle East was about to change forever, is what we're going to talk about today. So stay tuned. Hello and welcome back to episode 3. This is what I consider one of the most fascinating and crucial periods in Islamic history. For this is when the direction of Islam after the death of the Prophet would be decided. The nature of Muslim political rule would be decided, and that would shape the next millennium. In this episode, we're going to mention a lot of names and a lot of events, but the key is not to get bogged down in the details. The important thing is to focus on the big picture see the major trends of how the Muslim state was developing and how it would split. Today we're going to talk about the first four rulers of the Islamic Empire, or first four Khalifs, as they would be known, and they are called the Rashidun, or the Rightly Guided Caliphs. So, by the time the Prophet died in 632 AD, only ten years after he established the first Muslim community, he had united most of Arabia under the banner of Islam and under his leadership. Islam had spread rapidly and without ceasing, yet there was no reason to believe that this would continue after the Prophet's death. In fact, a large portion of the tribes of Arabia was convinced that it shouldn't. Now to explain this, we need to look at the nature of the politics in Bedouin Arabia. The core political and social unit, as we've said, was the tribe, and the tribe is really an extended family grouping divided into many sublevels. We use words like clan and subclan in English to try and explain these, but the Arabic has a very precise system of subdivisions. There are eight levels, in fact, underneath the tribe, going from the qabila to the button to the ashira, all the way down to the family. Now, the level above the tribe is known as the hizb. Now, this word may sound familiar to you because hizb is a political party, probably most familiar to us from the word hizbollah which means the party of God. This word is also a favorite of Arabic teachers because you can tell when the students are using Google Translate when they say, I went to a hizb yesterday. It's not that kind of party. That's a hefla. But when we think about a political party, we think about a group of individuals with different interests who come together for a temporary campaign of some sort. Now, it's not that Arabic didn't have words for other types of organizations. They had words for kingdom, for state, for princedom, for country, and so on. It was rather the nature of Bedouin society that drove this choice of word. The desert couldn't support large, permanent entities. Two or more tribes could unite temporarily for a common purpose or to fight a common enemy, but they would have to separate back down to their individual tribes afterwards and go back to different territories. And that's exactly what many of the tribal leaders expected to happen when Muhammad died. They believed that the allegiance they gave to him was personal and temporary, the way it always was when a hizb was formed. They would continue to follow Islam, 
But in terms of political and military leadership, they would revert back to their independence. Now a small group of the Prophet's closest companions, led by Umar and Abu Bakr, two individuals we're going to talk about a lot today, they realized that the moment was critical if they were going to hold this alliance together. Now the natural question to ask at this point is whether the Prophet left any instructions about leadership before he died. Well, the answer to that question is it depends on who you ask. Start first with an important character, Ali ibn Abi Talib, who is the son-in-law and cousin of the Prophet, really his closest male relative and the closest thing to an heir that the Prophet had. And we're going to talk more about that in the future. Ali will figure prominently in the history to come, and he is arguably the most revered figure in Islam after the Prophet himself. But in the last year of the Prophet's life, he is said to have stopped the Hajj caravan, the pilgrimage caravan, and given a sermon in which he declared to the assembled believers, quote, of whom I have been the Mawla, Ali is to be his Mawla. Now this term Mawla is usually not translated into English, and that is because it has multiple meanings. One meaning is Lord or Master, but the word can also mean friend, and both were in common usage at the time. To those who would later become known as the Shia, that is, those who believe Ali was meant to become the leader of the community, they thought that this was a clear indication that Ali was established as the Lord over these people. To those who disagree, and these will later be known as the Sunnis, they thought it was a simple tribute of respect that Ali was to be their friend. Interestingly, Arabic has plenty of other words that are much more specific for ruler, lord, governor, friend, companion, and so it could have been made much clearer. We also consider that the Prophet left many teachings behind. Over 600,000 reported sayings of the Prophet were identified in the years after his death, and a lot of dispute about the authenticity of these. But amongst them, there is very little specific guidance. In fact, Sunni doctrine simply says that the Prophet left no guidance on the subject. Shia doctrine says he was very clear on it. Now, even this lack of guidance is open to major interpretations. The tribal leaders, whom I mentioned earlier, they considered the alliance ended on the death of the Prophet, so they took his silence on this subject as clear evidence that Muhammad didn't intend anyone to be leading the community after he was gone, which would be the natural state of affairs in Bedouin society. But the counter-opinion, and this would become the basis for the Sunni view, was that, was that the Prophet intended them to follow their traditional custom. Now, the Bedouins didn't have any written laws for electing a tribal leader, Custom said that the elder males of the tribe came together and chose the most capable among them. In a desert, a tribe couldn't afford to have a weak or incompetent leader. Therefore, they believed that the prophet intended them to follow their traditional custom. So really, the difference here is whether this new grouping was to be considered a hizb, a temporary alliance of separate tribes, or whether this was a new tribe one that was based on faith rather than on blood. Well, we've got those competing interpretations. We've got those who thought that Ali had been designated. We've got those who wanted a consensus of elders. We had those who wanted to go their own ways. So things were quite chaotic in the immediate aftermath of the death of the prophet. 
Now these tensions were exacerbated by divisions between the companions of the Prophet, known as the Sahaba, who were mostly Meccan, members of the Quraysh tribe, who were allies of the Prophet from the earliest days. And there were also the Arabs of Medina, who were known as the Ansar, who felt that they, quite rightly that they had been left out of the leadership despite being the ones who invited the Muslims into their town. And then amongst the tribes who had all sorts of rivalries and feuds. Well, strong leadership in the Arab world didn't mean just military leadership. It also meant political skills. Now, we should not take the simplicity of Bedouin lifestyle from a technological point of view to mean they had simple politics. They didn't. Bedouin politics were intricate, full of intrigues and negotiations and plenty of backstabbing. And only the most skillful could build a strong coalition. Now, amongst the Sahaba, the most adept at this was definitely Omar ibn al-Khattab, who was one of the closest companions of the Prophet and definitely the most clever political operator. In the chaotic atmosphere after the Prophet's death, Omar learned that a group of the Ansar were meeting and planning to break up the Ummah, or the Islamic community. Omar realized that the moment was critical, so he rushed in and worked very cleverly among the major tribal leaders in a scene that reminds us a lot of the old political nominating conventions. Not the kind we have now, where the uh, nominee has already been decided by the elections before they get there, but the kind we think of in the 1800s when party bosses gathered in the proverbial smoke-filled rooms to pick the best candidate. Just like in that situation, Omar knew that the key was to select a leader who was acceptable to the largest number of people. If you remember the famous Republican Convention of 1860, Abraham Lincoln said that his goal was to be everybody's second choice, and that's how he became the unexpected nominee and eventually the president. Well, in this case, the candidate who could appeal to the widest spectrum of people was the Prophet's father-in-law, Abu Bakr. He wasn't everybody's first choice, but he was the acceptable choice to the largest number of people. Now, Abu Bakr had a lot going for him. He was a respected elder, of course. He's known by his Arabic nickname, As-Sadiq, which means friend, but literally translates as one who tells the truth. And you'll see that name translated both ways uh, when it's rendered in English. Uh, by the way, the etymology of the word friend tells you something about a culture. In European languages, the word is related to the root for like or love. We think of ami, amigo, and so on. In Arab culture, think of this Bedouin environment with its shifting political alliances and intrigues. The friend is the one who tells you the truth. Well, both meanings were intended here. Abu Bakr was seen as the closest friend of the Prophet, and therefore one who knew what his thoughts were very well. But he was also seen as the truth-teller, meaning he had a good reputation amongst the tribes. In fact, the key thing that probably got Abu Bakr the job was his extensive networks of contacts amongst all the different Arabian tribes. Well, in Arab custom, there is no such thing as a coronation or inauguration ceremony. Instead, the people of power would line up and pledge their loyalty to the new leader. I think it's much more direct and personal. So therefore, chaos was avoided. Omar nominated Abu Bakr and then pledged loyalty to him. Others followed. By the time it was done, Abu Bakr had become the first Khalifa, or successor, of the Prophet. 
Well, if you remember, we left Ali out of all of this. As the closest relative of the Prophet, Ali was off preparing the Prophet's body for a burial and praying over it. When he returned, he found out that Abu Bakr had become the leader of the community. Well, in Shiite tradition, this was seen as a clear betrayal. Omar and Abu Bakr pulled a fast one and a really dirty one at that, when you think of it. While Ali was off fulfilling his religious and family duties, they stole the leadership out from under him. But Ali will continue to play an important role in this story, and we will see him become Khalif himself later on. From the Sunni perspective, however, the situation was critical. There was no time to waste. And of course, Ali could have been elected even if he wasn't there. So the controversy remains unresolved to this day. But like I said in the first episode, we're not here to find the quote, truth, to determine who was right. But rather, we're here to determine the facts. And the fact was, Ali was 31 years old at this time. He was renowned for his religious devotion and faith. But, not to offend my Shiite friends out there, had he been chosen caliph at this time, there probably would have been no Muslim empire. It probably would have fallen apart right then. And I think the subsequent events we're about to talk about will make that very clear. In any case, we'll see what happens when Ali does get to become caliph 24 years later. The much more permanent Sunni-Shia split would occur after Ali's death. Stay tuned, and we'll talk about what happens during the first caliphate. Okay, welcome back. Abu Bakr would rule for only two years, but these are very important years. He set the precedent for what a caliph would be and would not be. Much like how George Washington established precedents for what American presidents would be by what he did. For example, the two-term limit for American presidents was a tradition set by Washington. He could have just kept getting elected for the rest of his life and probably would have won. But by retiring after two terms, he set a precedent that everyone else followed. Amazingly, right up to the middle of the 20th century. It was only after Franklin Roosevelt ran and got elected four times that the Constitution was amended to make the two-term limit a law. And George Washington also set other traditions. He didn't want titles of nobility used, and that's why we don't have dukes and knights and so on here in America. So similarly, Abu Bakr, who had much less guidance about what the leader of the community was supposed to be, set a number of precedents. The first, of course, that there would be a caliph, a political leader of this Muslim community. Remember, a large number of the tribes didn't want this. But Abu Bakr also limited the role of that leader. He made clear that he was not a prophet. He did not receive messages from God. He had no special spiritual powers or authority. What he was was a follower. He had no divine claim on this job. He was selected by the Muslim community because of his qualities. And these, in the Sunni view, would become the way all future Muslim leaders would have to be selected and ruled. Now the term Sunni wasn't in use then, but its meaning definitely stems from the time of Abu Bakr. The word Sunnah in Arabic, it basically means norms or habitual practice, and in this case it refers to the Sunnah, or the practices of the Prophet Muhammad, meaning what he did and what he said. 
those who accepted Abu Bakr's leadership, and they're technically called proto-Sunnis at this time, but that's a little bit awkward to use, they felt that the duty of the community and of the leadership was to follow the Prophet's example. When the Quran did not give specific instructions, they were to look at what the Prophet said and what he did to get the best possible idea of what he would have done in a situation. Now this is very significant because what they're saying is the Caliph doesn't have some special priestly guidance or divine communication. He's not a pope. He doesn't rule on his own authority. He's essentially a student, an interpreter of what the Prophet did and what the Prophet received. And Abu Bakr was especially well suited to this role because he was seen as the closest companion of the Prophet. Now this essential difference will separate what Sunni and Shia think about the role of a leader and we're going to talk about that later on specifically in the next episode. Eventually the body of knowledge and records used to determine what the Prophet's Sunnah was, what he said and did, would become enormous and would require specialized scholars but remember again, these are scholars with extensive knowledge, not individuals with charismatic or mystic gifts or connections. This bedrock principle of Sunni Islam really begins with Abu Bakr. Also, Abu Bakr determined that this community would stay together as a state and would expand even by force. Though the time of the Rashidun Caliphs is often romanticized as a golden age, there was a period of almost constant fighting. Most of Abu Bakr's time was consumed with the wars of the Rida. Rida means apostasy in Arabic. And you may hear these described as campaigns to subdue tribes that refuse to pay their tribute tax or refuse to follow the tenets of Islam. But what we're really talking about here is those tribes that wanted to split up from the community after the death of Muhammad. Just because a large number of them came together and made a consensus, enough that we could select a caliph, didn't stop the rest from trying to go their own way, particularly the ones who were most distant from Medina. So there began wars, which were really a set of campaigns to force them back into the hold. Now despite the name of these wars, for the most part they weren't really abandoning the faith of Islam, but what they were refusing to do was to acknowledge the central authority of the caliph and refusing to pay their tax. One of the institutions that Abu Bakr had established was the Beit al-Mal, which is essentially the first Muslim treasury. And these taxes were essential for maintaining the state and for maintaining its military. This is not to say there were not some cases of genuine religious deviation. Several tribes claimed to have their own prophets, which of course is blasphemous in Islam, the most famous being a woman named Sajah from the Tamimi clan, who actually assembled an army of 4,000 warriors to march on Medina. She, along with a number of other alleged prophets, were defeated. Position was clear. There was going to be no prophet after Muhammad. Abu Bakr also presided over a very elaborate military organization. Amazing when we think about the short time that he had to put this together. Some 11 separate military corps conducted offensive operations over all parts of the Arabian Peninsula, from Yemen to Oman and Qatar, right up to the borders of the Persian and Byzantine empires. It's not clear exactly when or how these wars of Rida led to the Muslim conquest of Syria and Iraq, or whether there was an overall strategy. But they did continue. The Byzantine and Persian empires had employed buffer states 
of settled Arabs to protect their flanks against the desert Bedouins. Now Abu Bakr clearly felt that these were Arab states and therefore they needed to be incorporated into the Muslim community and he launched successful military campaigns to bring them into the expanding Muslim state. These campaigns were of course opposed by the Persian and Byzantine armies. Now whether Abu Bakr simply realized the weakness of those two empires and decided to press his advantage and keep going, or whether he had a deliberate plan of conquest all along is not clear. What is clear is that these wars of conquest would continue under Abu Bakr and then after him until we reached Spain in the west and Pakistan in the east. After a momentous two years in charge, Abu Bakr passed away from natural causes. He would be the only of the Rashidun caliphs to do so. Now his successor was a pretty natural choice. Omar, who had really been the driving force in Abu Bakr's selection and who was by now the number two in this very strong state, succeeded his close friend. Omar was appointed by Abu Bakr as successor and he had the smoothest transition of any of the Rashidun caliphs, as we will see. Omar, the second caliph, is remembered as a very austere and strict leader, and this is really an understatement. But it is under Omar that the assembling of Islamic law begins, and this makes sense because Omar was very strong on organization and on the rules. Although he only ruled for 10 years, he established a pretty elaborate system of government for this expanding Muslim state. He established 13 provinces, appointed provisional governors, established offices within these provinces, such as the scribe, the treasurer, the judge, and so on. While Omar was very strict, he was also extremely honest. He had a practice of not appointing leaders out of his own clan. They were all from the Quraysh tribe, like Muhammad. But Omar was from a different clan. He was from the Banu Adi. Now, when you think about this, in terms of everything we've said about Bedouin leadership, what a really strong transition this is. We are going to a state, a settled state, with provinces and borders, and we're establishing permanent governing structures. And Omar is really taking the bloodline out of that. Well, when Omar died, he had willed that no members of his own clan would be involved in the selection of the next caliph. Beyond that, he had a practice of replacing officials every two years so they wouldn't be in place for too long. And that even meant removing some very highly successful military and political leaders. And he required these governors to make the pilgrimage to Mecca every year so they could meet with Omar, tell him of their concerns, but also be reminded of who was the boss. In every military conquest that went on, there are elaborate records of Omar had the value of the loot calculated and distributed amongst the soldiers based on very strict formula. So therefore, Omar is remembered among the Sunnis as an example of honor and integrity. Shia remember him as yet another usurper who stole Ali's position as caliph. As we mentioned earlier, Omar was an extremely gifted political leader. There was still a great deal of unrest among the Arab tribes. Remember, it's only been two years since Muhammad died, and remember the chaos we had at that time. So Omar used a number of inducements to win over the Bedouin. He freed prisoners who had been taken in the Riddah Wars. He returned taxes that had been taken. He played on rivalries between the different tribes. But what was really important was because of the expanding Muslim state, 
there was a lot of income coming in from these conquests, and there was a lot of new territory, very rich, settled territory coming in to divide out. So Omar really succeeded in uniting the Arab Bedouin. Well, Omar is remembered in history as a great conqueror, and it is under his rule that Iraq was conquered, defeating the Persian Empire, which, as we said, was one of the two major empires left in the region. Most of Syria and Palestine were taken over from the Byzantine Empire as well. Yet political skill was more of a factor in these conquests than military power. In reality, the Muslims were outnumbered in almost every battle they were in, and they didn't really have any special military tactics or technology. But Omar was very good at winning people over, and particularly in these areas that he was going into, the ordinary citizens of Iraq and Syria were very alienated from the central authorities in Constantinople and in the Persian Empire. If you remember in a previous episode, we talked about the many divisions within Christianity and how many uh, sects were considered heretical. Most of the Christian communities that the Muslims encountered in Syria were considered heretics by the central authority and were actively persecuted by the Byzantine authorities. And even when they weren't, they lived under very corrupt, ineffective rule. So Omar succeeded in winning them over by offering very clear, usually written terms of agreement. If they accepted the Muslim authority, they would have to pay the jizya tax, but that was usually set at the official Byzantine or Persian tax rate, or even lower. And it was collected honestly. There wasn't a lot of corruption and bribery in it. They would have their religious freedom assured, and their position would be established and guaranteed by law. Now, actually, as strange as it sounds, this was a better deal than they got under, say, the Christian Byzantine Empire. Today, we look at Islam and Christianity as two separate religions, and we see these historical events as a series of Muslim conquests of Christian territory. But it didn't really look that way at the time. What they saw was a bunch of different monotheistic sects, of which they were not necessarily closer to the ones in Constantinople as the ones who were coming in, and they were getting a much better deal and much better treatment from these incoming monotheists. The most famous episode in these conquests was undoubtedly the capture of the city of Jerusalem, which had been under Byzantine control at the time. To give you an idea of how badly things had slipped, the sacred temple mount in the old city was being used as a trash dump by the Byzantines. Omar allowed the Jews, who had been expelled from the city, to return. He had the Temple Mount cleared out and rededicated. The most sacred site for Christians in the city was the church known as the Holy Sepulchre. Well, Omar was encouraged by his followers to go pray inside the church and make it a mosque. But he didn't want to do that, so he prayed outside the church and had guards put on the church to make sure that the Christians could come in and out and that it wasn't violated because he is recorded as saying that if he had gone into the church and prayed there, then other Muslims would feel that they were free to go in and violate the church. In addition to this, he came up with a written treaty of Jerusalem which gave very favorable conditions to the Christian and Jewish inhabitants, or in other words, they were better than the conditions that they had under the Byzantines. However you interpret this from a religious point of view, it was very smart politics especially for a ruler who knew that his army was smaller than most of his opponents. The reports of the Treaty of Jerusalem inspired local inhabitants of other areas, particularly in Egypt, where they were being persecuted heavily by the Byzantines, to side with the Muslims when they came in. 
And when you consider, by contrast, when the Crusaders captured the city in 1099, which we'll talk about in a later episode, the streets were said to run with blood, not just Muslim blood, but Jewish blood and also Christian blood. The effect of that massacre, though, was to unite the Muslim forces, which at the time were terribly divided, and to inspire them to fight harder. So here again, we're not trying to make a religious judgment about the piety and wisdom of Omar. We're just trying to say that he had very smart politics and a very smart military strategy. He won over the hearts and minds, as we say, of the people of the area he was trying to subdue. Well, despite his successes, Omar, like all of his successors, would be assassinated. In this case, it was not a Muslim who assassinated him, but a Persian slave, no doubt in revenge for the conquest of Persia, who poisoned Omar. Well, his death was rather slow, although the wounds were bad, and so Omar actually had time to give instructions on his deathbed about a number of subjects, but particularly about how he wanted the succession of his leadership to proceed. How that proceeds, we'll talk about in just a minute. So stay with us. Welcome back again. When we left off, the Caliph Omar was on his deathbed and had given instructions for how he wanted the new leader to be chosen. So in this case, he assembled a council of senior members of the community, and again, it was mostly members of the companions of the Prophet, the Sahaba, and he charged them to select a new Caliph. But as was typical for Omar, he excluded the members of his own clan from being part of the succession and being part of the consultation to determine the new Caliph. This process of selecting a leader is seen as an early example of Islamic democracy, and compared to what's going on in the rest of the world, it certainly is much more democratic than what we'd find in most of Europe and in most Christian kingdoms. And so some of the comments that you'll see today by uh, so-called experts claiming that Islam is less conducive to democracy than Christianity is just on the, the nature of the religion are certainly not reflected in history, even if we take this brief example. Well, in this instance, Ali was indeed a member of this council, and he was one of the candidates who was considered. But yet, a third time, he would not be selected. The man who would be selected to be the third caliph was Uthman ibn Affan, and he, like Ali, was a son-in-law of the Prophet. In fact, he had married two of the Prophet's daughters, Ruqayya and Umm Kulthum, but he had no sons with them who lived to adulthood. And this is significant, meaning that essentially Ali was the only one who had a line of male heirs from the Prophet. Uthman was again a very close companion of Abu Bakr, but most importantly he was a member of the Umayyad clan of the Quraysh. And we're going to hear a lot about them in the future. In fact, you may recognize that name as being the name of the first Islamic dynasty. And that is because the Umayyad clan was the richest and most powerful clan in the Quraysh tribe. Uthman was also older, he was probably about 70, while Ali may have been about 42 at this time. 
But this was basically a political move because Uthman represented the most powerful branch of this Meccan power base and the most closely allied with the previous caliphs at a time when the danger of the empire disintegrating was a major threat. Unlike Omar, Uthman was not renowned for his piety, but he was renowned for his political and economic skills. During Uthman's 12-year caliphate, the economy grew tremendously, and the conquest continued all the way to Pakistan in the east and Tunisia in the west. If you consider what a short time we are talking from the founding of the first community in Medina, and what a large empire has been formed, this is truly amazing. Beyond that, though, Uthman was responsible for establishing the first Muslim navy, and this navy was manned mostly by Christians, defeated the Byzantine navy in 655, which made Islam the dominant power in the Mediterranean. And we think of Islam as spreading along North Africa into Europe through Spain, but they also conquered much of the Mediterranean, like Sicily and southern Italy. One of the most important achievements of Uthman's Caliphate was the compilation of the Quran in the form that we currently have it. As we mentioned before, the Quran had been passed down orally. It was a recitation. There was a written copy made during the time of Abu Bakr. But Uthman felt the need to make a definitive written version of the Quran. And by that we mean the divisions in the organization and the use of the Arabic script with all the markings to indicate the various sounds and the pauses and so forth that we indicated earlier. The reason for this was that the Islamic Empire had spread so rapidly by Uthman's time into areas that did not have a tradition of Arabic and to populations that were not Arabic speakers and they had a difficult time with the recitation of the Quran which had been somewhat easier for those who were brought up in the recitation of Arabic poetry. And so they needed to make a distinctive version of the Quran. And this is what Uthman did. He put together a, a team, a panel of experts who put the Quran in the current form that we have. And it has stayed with us in that form until this day. Thus he achieved a standardization, which as we said doesn't exist with other religious texts, and began the importance of the Quran as a written book, as a written document, and not just as a recitation. The copies of this were distributed to the various provinces of the empire. Well, despite all of his successes, Uthman faced a major revolt during his rule. As with much of the history of Uthman's reign, it's very difficult to get an unbiased version of events. Because having taken the caliphate from Ali, Uthman is reviled by the Shiites, but defended by Sunnis. But what does seem clear, though, is that Uthman appointed a great many members of his clan, the Umayyads, to positions of power. And the Umayyad clan certainly assumed the dominance in this Muslim state. Now, exactly why Uthman did this is subject to debate. In the Shiite view, it's because he was corrupt. But from a more realistic point of view, we can see this was probably an attempt to keep control of this empire. Remember, as the empire is growing, and it's certainly strong compared to its outside uh, opposition or enemies, internally, there's still the divisions between tribes, and because the empire is growing so rapidly, uh, there is this need to establish new provinces, 
appoint new governors, which leads to new power bases being developed. And so there was a real danger of power slipping away from the Quraysh, from the companions of the Prophet, and really becoming decentralized amongst the many tribes. What Omar was very good at was giving all the tribes a piece of the pie. Uthman apparently felt the need to go the other way, to keep strong central control. We can see one of the reasons he did this is that the revolt began in Egypt, which was a newly conquered territory. But Egypt, of course, is one of the oldest and most well-established states on earth, and so it was difficult to subdue. Uthman certainly seemed to see the need to have people that he could trust and that he could rely upon as governors. The result, as we said, would be the dominance of the Umayyad clan in the administration of the entire empire. Now, in the Shiite view, and again, they're seeing both Uthman and the later Umayyads as the, the chief villains in this story, this would mark the beginning of the corruption of Islam. From a Sunni point of view, Uthman's appointees were generally very effective, very good political and military leaders, and they did hold this empire together. And when we think about the conquests that will occur under the Umayyad leadership in the future, and we're going to talk about that in future episodes, it's sort of hard to dispute the logic of this decision. But realistically, Uthman's actions were a logical reaction to the political situation in which he found himself. Nonetheless, even Sunnis tend to acknowledge that from a religious perspective at least, Uthman deviated a little bit at the end. In any case, it would be Egypt that would be the source of this rebellion, and yes, the subject was the appointment of the governor. Well, the rebels from Egypt managed to reach Medina, and they killed Uthman in his own house. And as previously, a council of elders met to select the new caliph. And this time, Ali, who was by now 55, was selected as the caliph. Now, you might think that this would have finally reconciled the different factions and put an end to the schism that we had. But as we'll see next time, the real divide would begin after Ali's death. So next time, we're going to talk about Ali, his caliphate, and particularly the emergence of the Sunni and Shia split. Now, I believe that is one of the most misunderstood and misrepresented concepts in all of Islam. And it's one that we hear a lot about, so you'll want to tune in to hear about that next time. So again, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. We'll see you next time, inshallah. Masalam.